Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Matthew A. Vogan. Matthew is an author and editor of several books. He's a tutor at Edinburgh Bible College, and he also serves as manager of Reformation Scotland Trust. Along with Chris Caldwell, Matthew has published a new critical edition of a previously unpublished manuscript, some sermons on the Old Testament Book of Lamentations, preached by the Scottish Presbyterian minister David Dixon in the middle of the 17th century. This edition has been published by Naphtali Press and Reformation Heritage Books. Matthew, congratulations on your most recent book and welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's good to be speaking with you about it. Well, before we jump into David Dixon and these sermons on Jeremiah's Lamentations, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you trained, the kinds of, the kinds of literary work that you've been involved in since? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I my first degree was at the University of York, and I studied English literature and really got a taste for 17th century literature. Then um, did some postgraduate uh, in that and uh, did a couple of postgraduate uh, degrees on uh, 17th century literature, um, latterly, um, particularly John Bunyan and his sermons. Um, and that was... Uh, something that I've just carried on, even though I sort of went into <clears throat> unrelated work in local government. Um, that that's been something that I sort of carried on, you know, sort of having a an interest in writing articles about, and and also getting into um, Scottish um, history a bit more from that time in Scottish literature, um, especially Samuel Rutherford. Um, I've written a couple of books in relation to, to him, but um, it's a, just an interesting period to to explore um, and to to write about. Um, so got more into the literature of that time, and uh, in the last five years I've been been working for the Reformation Scotland Trust, which really focuses on that period and starts to uh, try and open up something of the history, but also something of the, the literature, which has been kind of neglected even by people that um, have an, an interest in that th- that kind of uh, era where the Puritans flourished in England and the Covenanters um, also flourished in, in, in Scotland. So so that's, um, generally speaking, you know, how, how I've come to, to have an interest in David Dixon. Great. Now, Dixon was obviously a big figure, wasn't he? A minister in the west of Scotland, in Irvine, but with a, a, an influence that, that stretched right the way across into northern parts of Ireland and through much of the rest of Scotland as well. And your introduction t- to this edition describes in, in really quite remarkable detail the, the very difficult circumstances of his early ministry, that the kind of political and cultural pressures that were at play and the way in which he responded to them, but also something of the influence that he was able to wield that these sermons uh, suggest as well. 
So can you tell us who was David Dixon and why does he matter? Okay, yeah. David Dixon, I I think, was probably a bigger figure in his time than he has come to be um, in the more recent past. You know, so people historically tend to to focus on certain figures um, and people like Alexander Henderson loom large from this point, from this period. But David Dixon, I think, has been a little bit neglected in terms of scholarly study. Um, and that's, you know, that's something that I hope might be redressed. But just to give you a, a flavour of his of his life, um, he was born around about the year 1583 in, in Ed, sorry, in Glasgow um, to wealthy Glaswegian merchants. So you get a sense of the strata of society from which he's coming. But he was one of the most significant ministers and theologians of this, what you might call the covenanting period, or some people have called it the Second Reformation period in, in Scotland. And he played a, a leading role in the events surrounding the signing of the covenant in 1638 and the Glasgow Assembly uh, of that, that year. Um, he would be a professor of theology in Edinburgh and Glasgow, and <clears throat> one of the things that's noted um, is how many people he actually trained um, in terms of the, the ministers, as many as three quarters of Scotland's ministers in the mid-17th century. So he were, really was a, a massively influential figure in the Scottish church. But if you look at his life, it really sort of traces something of the the rise and fall and rise again and then fall again of the Scottish church because it is so much... Um, eventful during this this period of the 17th centuries. He's born, as I said, in 1583, and the, the National Covenant's not long been been signed. Um, but then you go into a period when there's this real struggle between um, the Scottish Church and the monarchy, where the, the monarchy, James the, the Sixth, is looking to really exert his control over it and um, have it under his thumb. And there's a period up until um, the early 1590s when um, that seems to be going in the king's favour, but then um, it it swings back, if you like, to a very temporary influence for the the Scottish church. But ultimately, um, that doesn't last, um, and James begins to exert his influence. Um, He brings uh, bishops into a Presbyterian church, and he starts to try to align the, the worship of the Scottish Church more with the um, Church of England and the Anglican ceremonies. And so at this time, um, it, sorry, David Dixon is, is training in, in Glasgow College, now University of Glasgow. He becomes a regent there, so teaching the, the students himself. And then he is ordained to the ministry in Irvine. And it's in the year 1618, which is a, a pretty critical period um, and year in, in the Scottish Church because the Articles of Perth are um, put through, um, well, I think, what is agreed to be a sort of pretty manipulated General Assembly by, by the King. And those really, you know, align the Scottish Church uh, in a big way with with the the worship of the Church of England. And at first, Dixon's not that troubled by it, the whole Episcopalian-Presbyterian question, but he falls ill and he starts to think more seriously about it. 
and they come to the view that he just can't agree with this. And so he actually starts to speak out publicly about that. And that is getting a lot of people into to, to trouble and they're being deprived from their uh, pulpits and they're being confined to different parts of the country. And so Dixon appears before the High Commission and he's uh, sentenced to be confined to Turriff in Aberdeenshire um, and he's there for about two or three years before he then is allowed to return back to Irvine, which of course, as you say, it's got quite a strategic importance because um, it's on the coast. It's probably the main route on your way to Ireland. And so um, you've also got trade with other parts of, of, of the country <clears throat> and of, and for, for Europe itself. So um, it's a pr- pretty major seaport um, and he's able to have this influence going forward. It has extends an influence um, into Ayrshire. Um, then it, he has a real role, as we said, around the, the events of 1638 and ultimately becomes this professor of theology first in Glasgow and then in Edinburgh. And then he dies in, in 1662, which is just when everything that he's worked for, if you like, is, is kind of being overturned and, and unraveled. Um, and he's deprived of his position because he won't agree to uh, the policies of Charles II. Um, so, so that's something of the eventful period during which he, he lived and eventually died. Mm. Now, obviously, there's a lot going on in his life, various changes of opinion, uh, even as he becomes ever more strategic within the infrastructure of the Church of Scotland. But he's also a writer, isn't he? And you've done some work in in a recent article, um, I noticed, trying to reconstruct his bibliography. Could you tell us a little bit about what he was able to publish? Yeah, um, he had, I would say, a concern for the ordinary person, you know, so he had quite what you would call a pastoral concern. Um, and he, so he's writing books for the ordinary person in the pew. And one of the things he was really concerned about was that your ordinary working man would get a thorough and an accessible knowledge of the Bible. So obviously the Reformation sort of opened up the scriptures to the ordinary person, but they need to understand it. So he, his design was... To, to sort of just concisely bring some of the key points of a passage before an ordinary reader so that when they sit down at the end of the day, they could absorb that and get benefit from it. Um, so he writes these commentaries and then he influences others to write the, the, these commentaries. When we say commentaries, they're not learned commentaries, they're expositions and they're drawn from preaching. So he writes... Uh, first of all, one on Hebrews, uh, then he writes ones on, on Matthew and, and the Psalms. Um, <clears throat> but he's, he also, when he becomes a, a professor of theology, he, he, he has the same um, desire for his students. And so he writes an analytical commentary of concise comments on all of Paul's epistles and and. His idea there is that they would be able to have have a a tool that they can use to to really get into the meaning of of, um, the scriptures uh, in their work. Um, We also mentioned, going back to his his emphasis on the person in the pew, so to speak, he 
writes um, sort of songs, if you like, poems that that people could make use of and, and sing. So there's one, True Christian Love, um, and and other ones. He also writes um, a handbook that helps people apply the promises. So you have a real problem with assurance at this time, and people, you know, are looking for ways in which they can know you know, am I truly converted? There's a lot of self-examination and soul-searching. So he, he writes on that point something that's like a, a accessible tool for people uh, to, to deal with um, for that. And that's the, the, the Christian's true, true comfort of spiritual food. Um, and he also writes uh, together with uh, James Durham something called the Sum of Saving Knowledge, which would have a massive influence in, in the church. It was Again, something very focused on assurance and practical issues, but with um, a, a sort of summary of some of the key teachings and doctrines of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. Um, another uh, uh, thing that he writes, which which is almost directed to um, the person in the pew, but also to individual ministers, is a book called Therapeutica Sacra, and that is you could translate it as sacred healing. He writes it first in Latin, so that gives you an idea of his audience. But then he translates it, uh, you know, which shows you that he also wants it to go to, 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 if you like, ordinary people. And that really takes the developing covenant theology and applies it in a in a pastoral way. What he talks about diseases of the conscience. How do you heal the diseases of the conscience? So very much about that whole um, pastoral aspect of things. And sometimes for, for scholars working in this period, you know, that's the sort of material that, you know, it's useful to get into in order to know what was that relationship between the minister and the ordinary parishioner. Um, and then there's, there's a lot of things in, in manuscripts, some of which may have survived, other things didn't survive. Um, and that's where... Um, there are items um, in manuscripts um, which are sermons or uh, other other writings, and, and this is where we, we have Jeremiah's lamentations and the sermons that he preached. Absolutely. So we, we get a real sense from this uh, description of Dixon's activity that he was extremely busy, very active. And there's a sense, isn't there, from the edition that his sermons too, his preached material too, was being quite carefully listened to and quite eagerly consumed uh, and um, as you just mentioned, um, you, you talk about uh, the ways in which um, ordinary people were, were, were listening to and taking down notes on, on, on some of the things that he was preaching. What, what then was the background to the manuscript that is the basis for this new edition of the Sermons and Jeremiah's Lamentations? Yeah, it's, it's notes that someone who was listening took. So that Dixon hasn't had any involvement in... Um, working on this. Um, it's just what came from his mouth. Um, and that can be, I think if someone's wanting something really exceedingly po polished, then, you know, there, there are downsides to that. But for someone who's wanting to understand as close as possible a record of, of what was preached and what was said, um, that that's really helpful. Because sometimes... Um, been working with Chris Colwell on um, Durham's exposition of Revelation, and he published that. But there's also a manuscript where 
he his lectures um, that records his lectures, and and you can see material that he's decided not to put into uh, the uh, 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 eventual edition, and and that's quite an interesting point itself. But that's a bit of a digression. Um, these sermons are preached in 1628, and so they, these are taken down. The copy that the manuscript copy is seems quite a fair copy, you know, so it's probably a copy of of the original notes as they they were taken. Um, There's a whole interesting question, I think, around about there is exactly how did people do this? They had portable writing desks and inkwells and probably their own kinds of either shorthand or or their own own system of abbreviations. But um, it was quite an industry when you think of it, you know, we just pull out a viral and a notepad and, and we're away. But if you had to keep going to the inkwell, it was it was more laborious. But anyway, um, they it's actually very nice and easy to to read it. Certainly, seventeenth century, but much more legible than than other um, manuscripts that are in a secretary hand or or something that's that's more elaborate. Um, so they they give a very full sense of how Dixon went through his application, his exposition, and show, if you like, the, the weight that he has towards application. And I think that's what where a lot of these interesting details come out um, in terms of the application, um, where he's starting to apply it to the times and you get something in a historical context. Um, so the manuscript obviously passed down through different, um, to different, through different hands. It probably did get copied by other people. That's what tended to happen with these kind of manuscripts. People would pass them about and they say, um, I'll take a lend of that and then I'll write out my own copy. Um, but this is the only copy that, that, that we're aware of. Um, and it eventually was bequeathed to the Glasgow University Library. And so that's where it, it was accessed. Um, I remember accessing it five years ago and um, finding it um, it's you know it's catalogued there, but I was looking for something by James Durham and, and kind of came across across this and and uh, it's a very full and um, interesting manuscript. So. Very good. So you you discovered the manuscript and you had someone transcribe it, and then the process of editing began. So can you talk us through the ways in which you, as an editor, think about preparing um, a fair copy of? Uh, sermon notes from the mid-17th century for a modern audience. What kinds of editorial decisions are you making as you work through that process? Yeah. um, There are... You have to... You can either go with something that's just exactly as you see it on the page almost, or... But but generally speaking, you've got to make some kind of... um, some some kind of decisions about about how to expand things and how to smooth things out, make it more readable for for a modern audience. It is a it is a very conservative, you know, transcription from one point of view, and it's very clear from the editor's preface what kind of um, standard um, changes have been been made. Words are are defined and difficulties that aren't clear because of the state of the manuscript are, are noted for, for people. Um, but it, th- there's quite a lot 
there where you have to puzzle over certain words and, and work out, you know, is that a Scots word that we just haven't heard of and that it's not in the, you know, the standard, you know, dictionary of the older Scots tongue? Um, or is this something that's been misheard? You know, there's all kinds of um, decisions that, that, that have to be made. So in some senses, the easy bit is just to, to go through and transcribe what's there, but then you have to go back through and make decisions. So it does require, you know, going through in several iterations and, and checking and rechecking. And sometimes you're, you're putting something in, but then when you look at it in terms of the context, you know, that's when it becomes clear. No, we must have misread so we have to go back to the image and go back to 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 look at the word itself and say is that something that you know is it, is it actually saying some something else and should it be read in a different way so so there are lots of 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 this decisions it's it's not just an individual um you know it's not just taking the transcription and and and, and that's it um so and, I said I suppose yeah. it's useful for listeners to know that that these are transcriptions which use a lot of Scots terms. Yes. Um, so Scots being a language which is related to but distinct from English. So the, cha- the paleolog- paleographical challenge is twofold, isn't it? It's actually identifying the words and also identifying them in a language that is not commonly spoken today outside certain parts of, of Scotland. That's right. So you've got 17th century spelling, which, you know, as you know, is... is you know, you've you've got to deal with that, but then you might have to be dealing with a Scots word, and which might be, which might itself be abbreviated. Exactly, you've yeah. got these yods and thorns and other other letters and ways of abbreviation. You know, like um, if anyone's familiar with manuscripts of this time, you get a Q and then a superscript T, and and that means what? But but most people wouldn't really pick that out. You know, as, as that's the obvious <laughs> you know, sort of meaning of it. So, yeah. Well, Matthew, could you give us a taste of what the sermons sound like? We've been talking around them a little bit, but could you give us a sense of what it might have been like to listen to David Dixon as he preaches? Sure. Um, so this is, if you like, just the very opening of the first sermon. So he's telling us why he's he's expounding um, the, this book of, of Lamentations, what he expects them to, to, to get from it. He's He's completed preaching through the book of Jeremiah, which is a big task, and, and obviously moved on to, to lamentation. So this is the beginning. The Lord has cast this book in our hand as a very necessary doctrine for you. First, that the former prophecy which now we have handled may take the better impression in your minds. Next, that you may see the words of this prophet are not wind but after follows heavy dints and strokes upon the people of of God. Third, because we are a people that have never been much moved with the Kirk's ills. In general, the afflictions of the Kirk have never gone near our hearts. We are a people that have never mourned, no, not for the evils of the Kirk in our own days. We have been sorry for many causes, but not for the afflictions of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord has cast this book in our hand to make use of it. If then the Kirk's evils touch us not, it is a token we are not lively members of it. And if we do not now mourn with her, it is a token 
we shall not be partakers of our joys, comfort, nor delivery. We take upon us to pray that Christ's kingdom may come. If then we be not sorrowful when his kingdom is hurt, it is a token that our prayers have not been fervent. There is a question among the learned about the time when this lamentation of Jeremiah was made. Some say that Jeremiah, foreseeing the ruins that were to come after the slaughter of Josiah, who was the last king of any worth in Judah, wrote this lamentation. And that because in the Chronicles it is said that Jeremiah spoke of Josiah and that mourning women lamented him. But this opinion is conjectural and has weak ground. As to that place where he says the breath of their nostrils is taken away, Lamentations 4.20, we shall expound it in its own place and tell of whom he means. It is possible that Jeremiah, among others, had a lamentation, among others, for Josiah. But this lamentation is made for the burning, sacking, and overthrowing of the city, temple of Jerusalem, and ruin of the kingdom of Judea. And it seems to be written after the temple was burnt, the city sacked, and the people scattered. At that time, when Jeremiah had none to preach to, he writes these lamentations, wherein he lays out, firstly, the misery that is to come upon the Kirk of God, Secondly, and acknowledges that the cause whereof is the people's sins. Thirdly, then, in the person of the Kirk, he humbles himself under God's hand, making supplications under some confidence to be heard. Thanks, Matthew. Now, as uh, as those opening couple of paragraphs suggest, Dixon sees Lamentations as a book about warning, doesn't he? Yes. W- warning and warning. Um, yeah. What kinds of things is he warning people about? He's concerned about, um, you know, we talked about the context where he had personally um, been banished, you know, for his opposition to the official policy in, in, in the church. So he, he's concerned about what we might call, I suppose, church politics. Uh, he's concerned about the decline as he sees it in, in the Scottish church. And he has this, narrative of what we would call the decline um, of the Scottish Church. So he's saying, you know, Scotland was um, the eminent reformed church in Europe. It had a, a glory that the nations about admired it. And, I mean, that that's not just Dixon, of course. You remember James VI telling the, the General Assembly how, how he thought that the Scottish Church was, was the purest reformed. Um, and And so, but now he's saying, but now our unity is turned into schism, our golden purity of worship mixed with human inventions. And he's concerned because what he's seeing is um, a, a control by the bishops of the pulpits, you know, so that people who don't, who aren't the bishops, yes, men are being put into, uh, are being held back from, from, being ordained in congregations. And, and so he's, he's concerned about the future generation. He's, he's thinking, you know, how do we maintain this past glory? How do we recover that? Um, and he's he's concerned about the nature of the preaching that those who are subservient to the bishops are, are giving, which is, you know, as, as he puts it, Men who come to the pulpit with a bag of words without the evidence of of the of the spirit. Um, so he's, what he's seeing is is what he would describe as a deformation, a, a defection, um, and and he's saying 
if you look to the long view, um, this is go- only going to, to, to result in persecution. It's only going to result in trouble. And he's looking to the position in, in Europe, um, and where the 30 years war is going on. And, and he, he thinks that's what could c- come here. You've got conflict. You've got, you know, difficulties. Um, if as they fear, you know, with the rise of Archbishop Laud, um, and, and of course the English Puritans are fearing that there's, that their lead, that that might lead towards, um, a sort of reunion with Roman Catholicism or moving in that direction, then, you know, that, that's what, what he's seeing in terms of, of, of the long picture. And, you know, he, he, he does specifically say persecution has been, you know, he, he says, well, effectively, you know, I've experienced this, we've been experiencing this and more is, is to be feared. Um, so that's his great fear. And he, he just feels that people are, you know, if I was to paraphrase, it, he feels that people are complacent, that they're not, that they're secure. And especially in like Irvin, where they've got a minister who's preaching to them and they've, they've got these things and they take it for granted. And people have, have taken the things that they enjoy for granted. And that's, that's how he would um, express it, that then these things may disappear quite quite quickly and quite easily you know so he uses the whole way in which the whole worship and kingdom of judea is overthrown especially the temple and and everything associated with it so that they've got no more worship left as he and he says well you know what would happen if that happened here you know so that's his warning he's saying if we are complacent then that could be what would happen here that you know our we wouldn't have the purity that we've had we you know might become desolate and, and ransacked um and it, it, in a way it's it's you know we're probably looking we look back on it and we think well that seems a bit alarmist but within 10 years they would have warfare uh, in in the country there would be a, a period of intense conflict so it didn't you know, take any unusual gift of prophecy to, to see these things. And then also we mentioned the year 1618 and um, uh, that, that was when Ogilvy the Jesuit was was hanged for treason. And so th- there was still, you know, a, a sense of this fifth column threat, you know, uh, within the country um, and, and also fears of invasion in relation to the Thirty Years' War. So... It's quite a tumultuous time in, in which he's, he's seeking to, to apply it on different levels. Well, Matthew, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment and how we might be able to find out about it? Sure. Um, at the moment, I've, I'm working on transcribing some sermons that have never been published by Andrew Gray. Um, remarkably, a lot of his, his sermons have been published. He was a minister in Glasgow who uh, lasted for you know, just about two two years or so, um, and and so a, a lot of his sermons have been published, but these ones uh, are being transcribed, and and I hope will be published by the end of the year. Um, that's uh, with Reformation Heritage Books, um, and another project with Reformation Heritage Books is um, a rather more long term one, which is a collected works of Samuel Rutherford, um, and it's it's taken it's taken a while to to sort of get it underway because it's a big big project but um we, we hope that um over 
uh, the coming during the coming decade we'll be able to to have that um, and and gradually release that so I'm one of the general editors together with uh, others so that, those are some of the main related uh, publications that sounds fantastic well Matthew thanks for coming on to the show today thanks for preparing this work sermons and Jeremiah's lamentations published by Naphtali Press and Reformation Heritage Books and thanks for your time and take care thank you very much good to speak with you and thanks to everyone else for listening in today I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies a channel on the New Books Network podcast.